Jason and Yvonne Lee, wife, husband, father, mother, actors, producers, and seekers, educators, explorers of identity. You're listening to Lager Lane Spirits, a delicious podcast where we invite you into our living room for a family spirit symposium, a real talk meeting of the minds over reverent cocktails. Join us as we dive back in time to examine the legacy of our ancestors that have shaped the stories of our shared cultural history. You can find all of our cocktail recipes and show notes on lageralanespirits.com. And as always, please enjoy. Responsibly. It's difficult to think you belong in a space that doesn't seem to want you there. My Angelou says the real difficulty is to overcome how you think about yourself. But how can you do this when you don't see yourself? How can you when stories offered by film, television, and beyond don't show you as you are, but how they think you are? You overcome. Welcome to Lager Lane Spirits, everyone. Uh, Speaking of overcoming, I was listening to NPR, which was doing a rebroadcast of Freakonomics radio podcast on a story about the ABA, American Basketball Association, versus the NBA. Lots of history here, and and you know I love my history and the NBA. Hang on. Does this actually have something to do with cocktails, identity, culture, or inclusion in filmmaking? Our main topic for today's episode? (sighs) Yes, my love. Yes, it does. I'm going to get there if you allow me. You got 60 seconds before I start getting (laughs) thirsty. Go. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) The story was about how dunking, uh, slam dunks, and the three-point shot, both at one point were considered déclassé. Uh, the NBA was like, we don't do such things in real basketball. We leave that theatrics for the folks over at that ABA. Well, those folks they were talking about were black folks mostly, like like George Gervin, Dr. J. Julius Irving, New York Knicks, and... <laughs> yes, uh, thank you. And um, and then, he was the MVP of both the ABA and the NBA over a 16 year career. How'd you know that? Impressive, right? Very impressive. Uh, tell, I know. Uh, very impressive. Very, very <laughs> impressive. But tell, tell the truth. Tell the truth. You Googled that, didn't you? I Googled that. And then I went back and I listened to the to the podcast. That's how I know. You did the, did the research. You know, what I love about watching sports with you, Yvonne, is you get so into it and you kind of get very passionate, but you root for both teams. And that's an interesting stance. I I love watching competition. I enjoy watching the competition. I don't always get the colors right for which team I'm watching. And, you know, sometimes I yes. don't get that part right, but I love watching competition. I do too. I do too. But, but okay, so Dr. J, what's amazing is that in basketball, NBA versus the ABA, we're going to get it to the analogy that fits in for this episode regarding access and, and providing access to everyone if the talent exists, right? So there's like Dr. Mm-hmm. J who could just like jump out of a building, right? Before Jordan, you know, Dr. J just floated through air. I mean, it was amazing watching him play. I'm, I'm dating myself because I'm of a certain age that uh, <laughs> could state that I actually did watch Dr. J play. Those uh, the 83 Sixers teams, they won the championship. Uh, Moses Malone, Bobby Jones, Billy Cunningham. Moses Malone. Dun, 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 dun. 
That's that's right because you know because basketball is my favorite sport. Yeah, sport. I like the way they dribble, I like the way up, they and dribble up and down the court. <laughs> the court. It's like I'm the king on the microphone watching <laughs> Dr. J and Moses Malone. And Moses I like Malone. slam dunk. Take him to the hoop. Take my to the favorite hoop. play is the alley oop. I like alley-oop. the pick and roll. I like the get and go because it's basketball. Go. Mr. Curtis Blow. Mr. Curtis Blow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So so <laughs> yeah. All all of that was what became such a huge draw for the ABA. They basically ripped the lid off of with their red, white, and blue ball in 67. They created, I think it had to do with Boston, the Celtics running things in the ABA for the entire 60s. Fan bases got bored watching the Celtics win every championship for about 10 years. And also at that time, the NBA was only was in 10 cities and the other cities around the country were like, yo, wait, wait, what about us? So the ABA started up and caught the attention of everybody because they allowed folks, George Mikan was the first commissioner, old Minneapolis Laker, and he wanted more excitement in the ABA. So they created the slam dunk contest. They created the three-point shot. They made it more exciting. It was the thrill of the the three-pointer at the buzzer, right? Like, I don't believe in regrets, but the one regret that I do have is that I did not hit a three-point shot to win a championship game in game seven of the finals. That would have been an awesome thing to do, but I wasn't that good at basketball. So I took all of that energy to Othello to plays, but but soon to the stage, to the stage. Soon the NBA and the ABA so they started. They, there was a merger, and this story is big. There's there's an amazing story about the the NBA and the ABA merger, and I highly recommend everyone give a listen to that Freakonomics uh, podcast that explores this. But what my point is is that soon the NBA saw how the spark was lit by the ABA and decided, okay. We're going to have that too. It's cool. We like it now. So it's cool. And the rest is, as I like to say, history. Ah. And you're equating that with how the narrative of filmmaking has shifted to cool us brown and black folk. And the industry is being held accountable for honest casting of ethnicities and races and giving access to multiple voices by putting BIPOC people in front of and behind the camera on the pen and paper and like us as investors. Am I right? Yeah. (laughs) You're the smartest man I know, right? And the handsomest. (laughs) Naturally. You just want your cocktail, don't you? Uh Uh-huh. Fine. I, I only interrupt history because I love you. And my ice, also, my ice is melting. Tonight's cocktail is appropriately the smoke and mirrors. And the the smoke and mirrors is basically a daiquiri variation built upon the specs of a cocktail called the Eastside, and which they basically mm-hmm. swap out this, uh, the gin in an Eastside cocktail for scotch. But so I, I connect it back to the NBA and ABA conversation from earlier because of the smoke and mirrors being built upon the specs of the east side. You know, I'm a north sider from Chicago. We met on the north side of Chicago. You know, go Cubs, Mm -hmm. go Bulls. And part of me wanted to find a different kind of swap in. And we might, by not using the absinthe that a smoke and mirrors calls for, and call it a north side. Obviously, in Chicago, there's no east side. So there would be either north side or west side. But this also makes me think about the Bulls uh, of the 90s, which were the the best team of of all time. People can debate me and argue with me on this, and, and I'm all for it. But... But you can't deny that that first 72 and 10 team was not, for me, the best team ever. I mean, maybe you can deny it or not. That's not the point. But my point is, 
Greg Hodges was fantastic. Steve Kerr, John Paxson, Bill Winnington, Rodman, Pippen, Jordan, uh, led by, by the Zen master himself. Those teams are just so wonderful to watch. So wonderful to watch. I really do uh, like the analogy that you brought up, Jason, the way that you're connecting all of these. Because um, tonight we're talking about creating access through film and specifically how uh, when you have a BIPOC person as a creator, a director, and an investor of content, it, it really creates a shift in what is not only popular, like the three-point shot that came from the ABA, but how it allows for an even wider access to greatness, you know, to have you talking yes. about this time where you saw all of these incredible players that inspired you, not just into sports, but to pursue all other avenues of greatness. Yes, yes. And the history of it, the research of it, it all is so just grand in scope, right? Like to be able to compete against each other, man to man, woman to woman, however, but to be able to compete against one another, right? Like we had we, we, back in the day in baseball, we had the Negro Leagues and Jackie Robinson broke down the barrier to allow Black folk to play in Major League Baseball, which created the access for all of the Caribbean island players and all of the just it leveled the playing field literally for those who can to compete against those who can. Right. Like like if Spike Lee hadn't got a hold of the camera when he did and we know how much he had to fight Hollywood not to not only get financing for his for his films, but to make the type of films he wanted to make. I mean, just think of the void. Right. Like, but opportunity wise, Spike helped open the doors for other awesome filmmakers with vision to to come through the John Singleton's Antoine Fuqua's Steve McQueen's and Regina King's Tyresha Poe's Issa Rae's Ava DuVernier on which whose board you sit. I'm, I mean, I mean, come on. Oh, oh, my gosh. I love sitting on that board. That's one of the most enjoyable places. Array Alliance, yeah. they, they're doing the most wonderful work. But what's so awesome about all of these is. When we talk about equitable stuff like this, I get so riled up, fired up. I want to do a behind the back spin and dunk over everybody's head like. <laughs> I mean, I mean, this is but seriously, you know, jokes aside, this is why this is why we created Logger Lane. Right. In episode two, we talked about our, our film Passing, directed by Rebecca Hall. Why did you respond so strongly to Passing, Yvonne? Hmm. <sighs> Well, I thought it was important to have people who represented uh, the central characters of the film, you know, to also actually invest in the film. I saw myself represented in the two main Black female characters, and I knew that there were other women who would see themselves too. Plus, and you know I have to talk about this, when we see people creating space for others and they're doing it well— yeah, you know, we like mm -hmm. to partner with those types of people. That's right. And without speaking for them, our guests mm -hmm. on our last episode, Chaz Ebert and Brenda Robinson, also executive producers on Passing, maybe we'd have to ask them, but maybe they felt the same. We got three very talented black women supporting the work of many others. <laughs> what can be better? More people like Oprah who own a bunch of different studios and they are the ones who are in control of everything. <laughs> yeah. Black people well, owning things. <laughs> People taking ownership and providing access by the sheer fact of their ownership. Yeah, you know that, and that 
Well, you know, it makes me think about Byron Allen. And I definitely grew up mm. knowing Byron Allen as the comedian. But then I started, you know, doing a little bit more research on him because I feel like he's provided so much access and access because of ownership, owning his own uh, media company. And I found this video on him and I was just so fascinated by how he was connecting his mission of creating uh, Black ownership specifically to uplifting Black people and mm. to be the uh, to be the inspiration that he had when he was growing up with all of the different comedians that he saw and and mm -hmm. and and got to work with. But it's amazing. He's so clear about what it is that he's trying to do, and he'd been doing it since he was a kid. Since a kid, he saw himself being an exec in the TV world, inspired by his mom, who was also, who worked as a publicist for NBC. So that's that's what I think about when we talk about access and is, is also talking about owning our own stories. So, I mean, TV has such an important role in making society more equitable, um, TV and film. And when other people see other people of color doing things other than what they stereotypically think we should be doing, you know, that's when we create change. Yeah. And you mentioned Byron Allen, like I, it instantly makes me think of Robert Townsend, right? Like people, mm -hmm. people who are out there, like I've got to create my own. I mean, Robert Townsend literally said, I, I need to tell my own stories because I'm going out there to audition for, you know, pimp number two and, mm -hmm. uh, and how he took it upon himself to get behind the, the camera and write and direct and also perform. Because if we aren't telling our stories, who, who is that, that energy is what led me to want to write and, and co-direct our lifeline. Mm -hmm. But you're mentioning, you know, the shows on TV with all of the platforms that we have now to consume product. TV is such an important part of our uh, culture, right? Because it's how, how a lot of us got through various the early stages of the pandemic, right? Mm -hmm. But like shows like Kim's Convenience, you know, This Is Us, Atlanta, Abbott Elementary, Blackish. And the show, I, oh, I, I watched this awesome show with our oldest daughter. It's a modernization retelling of Doogie Howser, MD. Uh, and it's set in Hawaii with a Hawaiian young actress. And what's interesting is Grace and I were watching it. I had her go back and watch the original pilot of Doogie Howser. And the pilots of both shows, beat by beat, sync up, match up. It's fascinating just to witness it. It's just, it's brilliant young 14-year-old Hawaiian girl, doctor versus Neil Patrick Harris at that same age. So it, it's access, right? Well, how much access uh, is it providing now that you're seeing this native Hawaiian young lady playing this iconic role from when like we were that age? Oh, and Bridgerton. Oh my God, Bridgerton season two is fire y'all with those <laughs> gorgeous South Asian sisters as we connect all of our Hawaiian, Asian, indigenous peoples together. Shonda Rhimes, my queen Shonda, yeah. how does she manage to get yeah. it right? So right over and over again. Because she spent a year saying yes. Right? Like, <laughs> yes. But with regards to access, if you can get in, if you get your foot in the door, you get your toe in the door, what do you do once that door has started to peek open uh, just a little bit? But yeah, no, Shonda Rhimes, you know, she spent a year saying yes, but, but no, it's, it's probably because she just, she gets it right. I mean, it's a right to show black and brown doctors and black and brown royalty and black and brown and LGBTQ love because it exists. We exist. In fact, not showing us doing all of these things we can do 
is worse. It creates fear and mistrust because it makes us not keeps us. It makes us aliens, green Martians jumping out of spaceships in New Mexico. And what do people do to Martians? Kill them dead with a taser. Okay. Damn, Jason. Okay. Is it the drink or, or are we on fire today? Oh, oh, we we on fire, baby. We on fire. Ring the alarm. <laughs> alarm has been rung and it's called Locker Lane, if I do say so myself. <laughs> <sighs> Did we talk about what's in this drink? <laughs> nope. Tell us. And then... It'll be time for our cocktail confession with our guest, Angela C. Lee, an amazing Spirit Award-nominated producer and a former 2018 Women at Sundance Fellow, a talented woman who we are working with, and we love, 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 love so much. Love, love, Angela. Well, for the cocktail for this for this episode, it's Smoke and Mirrors, okay? Smoke and Mirrors was created by a little story behind the, the cocktail. It was, it was created by Alex Day, bartender who created it for Death and Company. And if you know me at all and have been listening to this, these episodes in our podcast, Death and Company really has inspired me deeply to perfect my at-home bartending skills. And they've released three three uh, recipe books. Uh, their second book, The Codex, it was a James Beard winning book. It's the only cocktail book that has won that award. The Smoke and Mirrors, it's scotch-based, so it has a brownish color, some great sense of licorice from the absinthe spray. But so its ingredients are one ounce Isla scotch, Lagavulin, one ounce blended scotch, Johnny Walker, red or or black, three quarters ounce lime juice, three quarters ounce simple syrup, four to six mint leaves, and you finish it with an absinthe spray. Throw those ingredients in a, in a shaker, give that a strong shake with its ice, and there you go. I like it so much, I think I'll make another as we wait for Miss Angela to come on. Equity's everything, babe. I'll have one too, please. Don't forget me. Oh, Angela. Hello. 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 <laughs> We're so happy to have you here with us today. Um, I love you because I, you are such a warm person. And um, since the moment that we met you and the capacity that I've seen you in, I was like, oh my God, not only is she a good human being, but any filmmaker would have the sky open for them if you were their producer. With you on their so side. I'm so happy. Yeah. Yeah. You that you're here with us. Agreed. With, oh my gosh, 100%. I'm blushing. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> You've made my day. <laughs> Maybe my month. <laughs> well, so for our listeners, our wonderful guest here tonight for this episode is Angela C. Lee, and she is the Associate Director of Artist Development at Film Independent, where she oversees the selection process and curriculum for fiction labs, including the screenwriting, directing, episodic, producing labs, and fast-track finance market. Angela also is a Spirit Award-nominated independent producer for Oscar winner Chloe Zhao's debut feature, Songs My Brothers Taught Me, which premiered in competition at Sundance Film Festival and Director's Fortnight at Cannes. A native Chicagoan and Southside White Sox fan, 
Angela graduated from the University of Chicago with a degree in economics. I grew up as a uh, as a diehard Cubs fan because we I moved to Chicago in '84, which was the first postseason in 40 years that the Cubs made the the postseason, and then it was fandom for life. But so we have a lot of dear friends from the South Side, and I loved the 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 Chicagoan debate about uh, White Sox or Cubs. It's 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 a lot of fun. Thank you so much, and props for for being so kind to to my. White Sox fandomness. Uh, I can't, you know, I think I was born and raised in the south side of Chicago. Mm. I could walk to Comiskey Park. It mm. will always be Comiskey Park, not yes. this guaranteed rate field U.S. cellular <laughs> stuff. Uh, and right. so I think like you, you know, when you're able to walk to the park and, and have those memories and go to go to games, you just it's just it who sticks. you are for your Absolute. life. And yeah. I mean, I will say that I did go to Wrigley Field once and I did was fortunate to get seats like 10 rows behind home plate for this one instance. And if you're a baseball lover, when you hear the bat crack against the ball, like that sound wow. and yeah. to date myself, like Harry Carey, I think, was still in the booth. Like yeah. Yeah. you have to appreciate it. Yeah. Uh-huh. But I did root for the other team. Sorry. I uh, th- no apologies needed. <laughs> I don't yeah, know. Yeah. I'm a Cubs fan by default and I <laughs> by root marriage. for the Diamondbacks because <laughs> it feels fun to be in competition. Uh, so <laughs> Angela, today uh so today we've been talking about access. Looking back at the who, where, why and when of us making our own way and our own projects to sort of get to get in, right? So from Byron Allen uh, to Shonda to Ava, you know, you know, people realizing that, oh, Richard Roundtree, people realizing that access doesn't come just because we deserve it. You've taken on roles like being senior manager of artist development at Film Dependent, as we, as we heard, and of course, being a producer, which is all about getting things made. Yes, we have people like you, which is why we have you here with us today, because uh, in our opinion, you get it and you get it in a, in a beautiful and sophisticated way that, that keeps you honest and real and authentic in your relationships. So, Angela, <laughs> are you ready for your cocktail I, I am confession? Ready. <laughs> <laughs> I am ready. If you need First to take off, a sip of your creamy tasting sake, you can do that. Yes. I will. Um, okay. So much to say. So my question for you, our question for you is, why is film such an important medium for creating access? First off, I just want to go back because Jason gave the kindest introduction. And I just want to say right back at the both of you, because this is a really tough industry that we're in. And it's so important to find kind and generous and compassionate people. And I'm so lucky to have met the both of you because you are the same. And I think that is what helps. That just is what makes, I think, storytelling so exciting, right? When you have people like that. And and hopefully this is actually a good lead in to, you know, the question you posed to me um, and equity. Um, I, I came from a background that had nothing to do with entertainment. Um, I grew up as we've discussed on the South Side of Chicago, um, where film and television was very much my babysitter for many hours. And, um, you know, as I grew older, just came to a realization that I 
didn't see enough of myself reflected on the screen. And how does one help change that? And without really knowing how to go about it, I was an econ major in college. I was working on Wall Street. And I and I was like, I I need to there was there needed to be more meaning in my life. And I felt like that was part of it. Because storytelling is so crucial to help build understanding and compassion for other people, right? It's it's what drives me to be to do what I do, um, to help others who are in different circumstances and situations see how different people live and gain understanding from that and hopefully be entertained by that as well and moved by that. And so I think to your point of why film is so important and necessary in creating equity, it's because it's so integral to our way of life, whether it's, you know, more traditionally through film in a theater, whether it's on television, you know, whether it's even like going into the kids these days in their short form, when you see someone, when you see a story from a different perspective, it just, and you're, and, and in that story you watch, whether it's, I always use this example a lot, whether I'm watching like a procedural on, on network TV and it's showing a different culture or something. I'm like, there, there, there's a way to infuse just understanding of different perspectives that I love about storytelling. And, and by allowing more diverse storytellers into this process, then we have more amazing stories out into the world that, again, people who are just turning on TV and don't know, they're like watching something, they might subconsciously learn. And I think that's super important. So I've made it my personal mission to kind of, to lift voices and stories that aren't often seen on screen. And I'm grateful that I also have an opportunity not only to do that in my producing work, but also in my work at Film Independent. What is it in, in, within your mission and vision that attracts you to specific filmmakers? I think as a producer, my job is to will to life these stories. <laughs> I know you both understand. Yep. Mm-hmm. And I have to have an enormous amount of passion for the vision of the filmmaker. So for example, Chloe Zhao uh, was actually, before, before she was an Oscar-winning filmmaker, was my intern. And mm. I... You know, she showed me her previous work when she was still at NYU, and I watched it, and I had a visceral reaction to it. Hmm. I just knew there, and then even though I didn't have the skills necessarily, I was still earlier on in my career, but I knew that she had a really powerful voice and point of view that I was excited by. Mm-hmm. And she pitched to me, uh, you know, in her interest in telling a story on a Native American reservation, which I also had interest in the people and the culture and the community. And we took our first trip to South Dakota. And that was the start of songs my brothers taught me, which was really exciting. And that movie from our first trip that we took in 2010 uh, until I 
think uh, the release theatrically of the film in 2016 took six years, mm. mm-hmm. took a lot of time. No one at that time understood or could see the vision quite yet, like I did. And when we're ta- and you know, I think no one would question now right. what a special storyteller she is today. And so this is why I think our conversation is so exciting to me in talking about access and equity. It was very difficult for the both of us who were early on in our careers and telling this very unique story to find traction within the system. The system Mm -hmm. of Hollywood really, it's a business first and foremost, Mm -hmm. sadly it is. And so they need to feed that system in a certain way. And so for them to see, so for the system to see kind of beyond that can be difficult until you shove it in their face or you show what a success it is, right? And so I always think that for storytellers, what can help you get your bring your story to life? One is certainly the filmmaker has to have that passion to bring the story to life, but finding the right partners. I think finding a producer who's also on board with you and ready and willing to will that project to life with you is key. And then I think that there are a couple other parties that are really integral and not thanked enough, I think, or recognized enough for their efforts. One, arts nonprofits like Film Independent, like the Sundance Institute. Mm -hmm. We live in a country that doesn't support the arts. And so that makes it really difficult for people without means to kind of find sustainability, to find their way, to get support and recognition when there's so so much out there, right? And so it's really great to have, again, these arts nonprofits who are able to to take a risk and to embrace something that hasn't been seen before, a story that hasn't been seen before, a perspective mm-hmm. that hasn't been seen before, mm-hmm. and give it that nurturing that that's not restricted or constrained by the institution. Yeah. And it's, I think, very liberating for filmmakers, from writers, directors, producers, all of that. And, you know, when they find their success like, and I can speak because I'm on both sides as both a, a filmmaker, as a producer, but also working at Film Independent. We couldn't be more proud of this, all the successes that we've nurtured through the years. And they don't, you know, as a nonprofit worker, you don't, you don't get much in return right. <laughs> aside from the gratitude, you know. And, and as an arts nonprofit, especially in this era, the support necessary for arts nonprofits like Film Independent and others is so, so crucial. And not only is that financial support, but also from filmmakers recognizing their roots and acknowledging those roots, I think is very, very important. You'll see in the printed bio, but like I always give thanks to all the organizations who've supported me because I wouldn't be where I am without them. Whether it's through mentorship, education, access, introductions, all of it. For someone who didn't come in without any connections into this business, I wouldn't be where I am today without the support of arts nonprofits. So I just want to give a shout out because I think when we're talking about access and equity, you know, when you don't have any connections, we don't have enough arts nonprofits, right? I, I think if you can get support, that's a very good first step. 
And then the other group that I also always want to acknowledge, investors and financiers, people who are willing to take a risk on first-time filmmakers, BIPOC filmmakers, all of that. When Chloe won her Oscar, I sent an email to one of our investors from Songs because like, you are part of that. You helped make this happen. And people don't think about that. And I think this also ties into just my ethos of gratitude, which I think is really important because again, this industry is really tough. And then as this entire community finds success, that's how you'll have more equity. Um, I think the other thing that I, I want to talk about, I guess, from my experience as a producer and the importance of that role, oftentimes, you know, a, a writer director is focused primarily on one project line, and producers usually have a, a slate of projects with different filmmakers and mm-hmm. different stories. And, and I think the more that you're able to lift a producer, a diverse producer, and diverse is like in every shape and form, then that will, that inherently will lead to more diverse stories being made. I think you look at some of the, like, I mean, just again, we were talking about Ava DuVernay, like you look at kind of like the slate of projects, whether it's fiction, nonfiction, episodic, when you rise to the top, you're able to lift a whole new generation of stories and storytellers. Like, you know, my colleague, Angel Williams, who used to be at Film Independent, an amazing writer and director, you know, got her first episode on Ava's show and just won an NAACP Image Award mm-hmm. for it. And it's it's really exciting. And I still think that we can do more work in diversifying the gatekeepers and kind of the upper echelon of producers, the ones who are kind of like, you know, making these decisions And when we see more of that, will we see, I think, more equity in the stories that are being told? Earlier, you know, Jason and I were talking about ownership, right? And we spoke a little bit about Byron Allen. And one of the things that I think is so interesting and what Ava's been able to do is in her organization, the people that are leading it are the people that she wants to see in film and that she wants to see in stories. And so you've got this, and it's a diverse crew of people from, from the board down to anyone who's working there. When you step on the right campus, it's, it's brown people, it's gender diverse, it's gender choice diverse, it's everything about it. And it, but then at the top, it's really mostly women who are, who are running it. Mm-hmm. And so I think that that's really interesting. And even with Byron, the way that he talked about it, he was like, I'm going to own as much as I can because I love television. I love the business of television. And I think that that's part of creating the access, right? Is that the artist in the end, in some way, can get access, but then we have to figure out how to own it. Ownership. That's an interesting thing. I mean, with I don't think we talked about it. There's a filmmaker that I'm working with, actually. Uh, uh, let me just give her a little shout out, Felaine Pang. Felaine! Um, we love Felaine! <laughs> so, you know, in my work at Film Independent, I, I see a lot of amazing filmmakers. And we, in my very first year, I came across Felaine, who went through my my labs with a project called The Space Between, which I know mm-hmm. Jason and Yvonne know very well. Because we love And, you know, it was so difficult making 
Chloe's first movie. I, was, I wasn't sure if I wanted to do it again. I was like, oh, maybe my world is meant to, to be at Film Independent and nurturing like new filmmakers. But then again, I saw someone's work that just gave me butterflies. And the row was knew, beautiful. I don't know if that's the first I one you saw. I knew I had to. Yeah. Oh, it was actually her directing lab scenes for The Space Between. So even before. Oh, really? Yes. Why didn't I know? Okay. Yes. Oh, my goodness. And like that year, we had like Catherine Hardwick and mm. Zal Botlingluge and Robbie Pickering and just all these really great folks as advisors. And I think they all were just really moved by her, her work and what she did in such a kind of like constrained and low budget way, right? As an exercise, she did such a great job that I was like, like, oh my goodness, she just (laughs) pulled me back in. I'm going down this path. Mm -hmm. And I mean, that was in 2014. Uh, And we, you know, it's 2022 right now. And we are still trying to get it made. Well, a a pandemic came in and kind of... But anyway, along the way, she's just a filmmaker that I find so riveting. And we had explored a lot of different other projects together. And one of the things that we we were talking about was a podcast, actually a scripted podcast. It's like beautiful, intense, but environmental thriller. And we got a deal from a large company. And it was literally like minimal paying for the services and then no ownership, just no ownership. And for us, we're like, this is all about the ownership. We're doing all of the work for this. How do we change the system? There's the the idea of access, of course. And then once you get on that path, then how do we move it towards then being able to give ownership or find ownership within our work, within the system, especially in this streamer, like glut era where they just buy everything up and your yeah. work for hire for your your projects. Yeah. But it's so difficult to make anything any other way. The other thing I want to talk about, I mean, we've kind of been talking very fluidly between mediums of film and episodic. I also, in thinking about our conversation, I also want to think about the importance specifically of feature-length films. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Chloe Zhao wouldn't be where she's at if she didn't do Songs My Brothers Taught Me and The Writer. Right. That Mm -hmm. were clearly not within the framework of the institution. Mm -hmm. And what she delivers now is always going to be influenced by that original voice, right? Yeah, Mm -hmm. yeah. Same thing with Barry Jenkins, right? Like, you talk about something visionary. It took two movies that weren't necessarily wholly supported by, that, that, that came independently mm-hmm. before people, before the institution said, okay, now we see what you're doing. But you can't do that in episodic as easily as a new voice, right? You know, Barry's first movie, Chloe's first movie, a lot of the first movies are done with very limited budgets, but that also can give perhaps these filmmakers more control or full control of their vision. And and I think that's very liberating and important for artists to have that I think feature films allow for. Yeah. And I think to be able to give them the space to, to be themselves and to have their own voices shine is really important. And it's representative in, in your work, both with the nonprofits and with the individual independent filmmaker that you 
produce, right? My attempted poeticness is, it's like a garden. And in that garden, something grows and starkly grabs your attention and your vision. And you're like, I need to tend to this. I need to pull the weeds aside. I need to help this grow in, in, and mature into its Chloe is or Ava, right? Or, you know, we think about the ones that have gone onto uh, super duper broken through Black Panther-esque levels and Jordan Peele get out-esque levels and Ava levels. And uh, I'm just wondering if you can speak a little bit more on the nonprofit element of the ecosystem and your work at Film Independent that leads you to these dynamite filmmakers who become the major storytellers of our time, but they start at a certain place. I just, that, that trajectory is fascinating to me. Discovery, right? And, you know, in my work at Film Independent, we review and have so many different submissions for our different programs. There's just so much talent, so much talent that I wish we had enough resources, I know, to support everyone. And that's always a challenge. We love when we're able to discover voices from all different parts of the country. And if there's been a benefit, if there's been a silver lining in the crazy past couple of years is that all of our labs have been virtual at Film Independent because of the pandemic. And so we've been able to host filmmakers from all across the world, you know, where traditionally our programs have always been in Los Angeles for a period of time, you know, where they'd have to kind of put their regular lives on hold to attend, which is a wonderful and amazing experience. But then to also be able now to do it virtually, we've had filmmakers from Bangladesh and Austria and like all over the U.S. as well, from the East Coast and the West Coast and the South and the Midwest. And and it's been exciting to be able to, to make it our programs more accessible in the last couple of years. And I think that for any artist starting out, but also even mid-career. There are so many working artists, right, who for sustainability are maybe doing other things that are more for profit, whether it's commercials or, you know. uh, Music videos. Video, exactly. And uh, commercials, any of those things. Or even like mid-career filmmakers, like made even if they've made one movie or two movies, that doesn't necessarily mean that they've, you know, accomplished what, they want yet. Right. Um, what I love about our programs is we recognize that and we support and we want to support filmmakers at all different levels because we recognize this is a long game and that it's important to f- help artists build a foundation of support. And again, as someone who came into this industry with no connections, no connections whatsoever to anything, didn't really know how the <laughs> business was run, these programs are really, really helpful in creating access. So for me, what I always say for our programs at Film Independent, they follow three pillars. You know, we're here to help give uh, a peer group of community of artists to go through a program. We want to help propel their projects forward, both creatively and strategically. And then the last piece, which is so crucial, is access to industry. Whether it's, you know, creative advisors whether as a, a screenwriter or director or producer, or if it's to executives, all of that is important. There are so many programs that focus on the creative, but there's a business 
savvy and understanding and connection that you also need in order to move your career and your projects forward. So that's something we love. Do you think this is where you use your economics degree? Uh, (laughs) Because like creative vision is fantastic, right? But let me frame this question this way. I often hear, we always hear that, you know, the only color that matters in Hollywood is green, right? Like, you know, as people of color, this is my a question for you both, Angela and Yvonne. What do you think of, uh, about that with regards to the access we're talking about for artists of, of color to explore their creative work? It's not just show business, it's business of the show. But still, we want dynamite stories to be told, but they need to make some money. So what do you think about that? You know, money, it's a thing, right? And it depends on what your intention is and what direction your intention is going or how you spend that dollar. I think that business is about people. Something that you're, that I learned from you, Jason, that your grandpa said to you, which is like business is about people. Mm-hmm. And so decidedly choosing to spend your money um, with intention to uplift, to uplift yeah. people. I think that it's powerful and it's lasting. It's a more joyful journey. (laughs) So I don't mind, as Angela talked about when you said the word discovery, I think that discovery and being curious and wanting to know more outside of your world, to me, that's actually the entry point for access. Because if you don't have that, then it just becomes about the numbers and then you'll never have enough money because there's just not enough of it. But if you have enough discovery and curiosity and desire for knowledge and connection with people, then it's infinite, right? I think that's why you both are so special, (laughs) because you see the world in this way. And I think, and it's actually quite beautiful, Yvonne, what you're saying about Jason, your father, your grandfather, talking about business as people. And I don't know. I mean, in this day and age, sometimes it's just business is dollar signs for a lot of people. Yeah. That, like we said, that was my grandfather, you know, 40, 40, 50, 60 years ago. I think that has been inverted in a macro level uh, in today's culture. Yeah. And that's why I think it is important and why, you know, I'm so happy that the both of you are in my world and, and there are others as well who feel this way. And I think that's how we can make change. And it's not going to be immediate, but it's like, one foot in front of the other, step by step. I think of, and I think you both know her, Ruth Ann Harnish. Yes. Oh my God, I love Ruth Ann. Ruth Ann. Oh my God, I love Ruth Ann. I think about uh, one of the times I heard her speak when she was talking about money, right? It was to, to a group of women, the importance of asking for money because it's not something that often women are very comfortable in doing. She was giving a talk about that and she was talking from her perspective as an investor about the movie that brought her the most joy was not the one that made the most money. Mm -hmm. It was a film where the filmmakers just were so passionate about and they worked hard to get it made, to get it out into the world, and they shared that journey with the whole team, their financiers who they viewed as partners. And Ruthann just talked about what a wonderful journey that was for her and how gratifying it was. And I think something that drives her to do different projects, right? Because of that feeling that Yvonne so eloquently spoke about. And when she said that, 
it moved me to tears. I know I'll never forget because for my work as a producer, like I'm looking for partners like that who care so passionately about artistry, about new voices, and care as deeply as we do, as the filmmakers do, about willing this project into life and sharing it with the widest audience possible. Also, as BIPOC filmmakers, I think it is harder. Film Independent has an amazing program called Project Involve, where we support not only writers, directors, producers, editors, cinematographers, but we also support people who want to be executives. And Project Involve is a program that's heading into its 30th year that supports filmmakers from underrepresented communities. And that executive track was created because of Film Independent's prescient recognition of the need to have diversity in the ranks of the gatekeepers. Mm-hmm. Um, Aaron Edmonds, who's a, a VP at Lionsgate, went through that program, and now he's been pivotal to continuing to nurture upcoming emerging diverse executives. And that's so important. You know, we're so hopeful in this little room that we're in right now. But I think that in order to create access, the thing that we also have to make sure that we're taking a look at is the hard reality, understanding the history of how we arrived here in the first place. So when we think we can't get somewhere, we always understand it's kind of like it's this invisible hand that we don't actually know 360 all of the views because our history books don't have the 360 view. There's a very narrow lane. You know, the last episode we talked about cast and we talked about where are we in the ranking in society? There's white people straight at the top, male, and at the bottom, black people. And then in the middle, you've got all these people trying to figure out, do I go up? Do I go down? Do I stay right here? What do I do? And so now we're trying to talk about within this system that rules not just the storytelling world, not just the art world. It rules every sector of how we operate in the United States of America. But anyway, that's what we're pitting ourselves up against when we're trying to create access is the history of this country trying to keep one person at the top and using other people to keep other people at the bottom. I remember uh, Yvonne and I were at the opening of the African-American Smithsonian, and Mm. Oprah uh, Mm. spoke, and she told the story about why she gave the the gift to name the theater there in her name. And she said, basically, there was a generation gap that we missed something from 70 to 2000. There was something in the story that was getting missed to the next generation. And so it Angela, I love how you're saying the, the ecosystems that do exist, the, the incubators that do exist to support filmmakers in that place. They do exist. They need more support. The ecosystem needs to be nurtured or it will dry up so that the next generation and then the next generation can benefit. 100% agree. I don't necessarily want to date this episode, but like today there was an announcement about Sundance doing layoffs and shutting down some of their programs, right? And the Tribeca Film Institute shut down last year to focus on their for-profit endeavors. It's a challenging time it's for a challenging arts, time. nonprofits. Yes. When we Personal. need it more, especially I think for so many artists who are still processing all that's happened in the last couple of years, in addition to all the other stories that they've wanted to tell, do we as a society, specifically the one here in the United States, 
you know, are we doing enough to support our artists? And and I think going back to where we started this conversation about equity, it couldn't be more important at this time. And it couldn't be more important to really lift voices from communities that we don't hear enough from, uh, because that's who we are. I mean, it's, it's what I love about having been born and raised in the United States. I love diversity. It's flawed. It's imperfect. There's a lot of things that I, you know, I'm not happy with, but I, I feel like I'm a richer person and a richer storyteller because of all of this. And, and I hope that we can find a way to better support artists because it's really hard to find that sustainability otherwise. I I will say, Angela, what I think one of the things that I love about you, one of the things that I find so interesting, actually, and because you come across so many different stories, like you're an Asian American woman who has been championing different people based on their heart and their humanity and your openness to learn about the story from that person's perspective. And I I find that so heartwarming and I'm learning from you how even I need to understand in terms of being a cisgender Filipino Black woman to be able to be an ally to someone who's LGBTQ or someone who is not able-bodied or someone who doesn't have an education and be that type of person and understand those kinds of stories. So you couldn't have said it better. I mean, like, again, I think continuing on with my mission driven work, it's to create more empathy in the world. Right. I think especially in this day and age, you know, where there are a lot of different points of view, story, film, television, These are ways that we can help others see different perspectives. And I think by nurturing that, that we can get to that equity, right? And having everyone understand and see different perspectives and feel empathy for people that you might not agree with, who live different lives, but can have a conversation around it, I think is so important. Listening. And being okay, being uncomfortable talking about it, like, be okay if it's uncomfortable because you're learning. We watched a movie in Champaign this past weekend, uh, The White Tiger, which explored Indian caste. And it, I just sat back and, and let it wash over me because I've read my history. I know about it from a book storytelling place, but I don't know it. So I want to be educated about it. And I think that curiosity in the soul is what makes us artists, but it also leads us towards hopefully an empathetic view, a compassionate view of the world that we live in. So we talked about ownership. Angela, this is your final question, and then we're going to close out and let our listeners go make another drink um, or cup of tea. Now that you're in this position, like you've learned so much, are you going to create your own studio? (laughs) (laughs) I would love to. There's a grand plan here, I hope. Ownership. (laughs) I would absolutely love that. I mean, I would love to get some of these stories that I've been nurturing off the ground and for the world to see how empowering it is to support these really exciting voices. I don't know that there are enough overall deals or overhead deals from the studios to BIPOC producers. So that's, that that's, me taking over the world one day. (laughs) Yes. And for those who are listening, we're talking about film, we're talking about storytelling, but this can be applied to any industry. 
what we're saying. People in any industry, in tech, in, in any kind of business, whatever you're doing, the kind of mentorship and access and belief in people working together, like all we are is a story. Need. And Angela, thank you for sharing yours. And, and we walk beside you, behind you in support of your mission and vision as we continue to explore ours. Ain't that, ain't that grand? Ain't that life, right? Like, may we all be compassionately in support of one another. Thank you so much for listening to me prattle on. Oh, no. Thank you. <laughs> for the last bit. But like, you couldn't have found a topic that I feel more passionately about um, and embody, hopefully, in, in my work at every level. So thank you for including me in this conversation. We'll, we'll continue conversations for sure. This was awesome. Anytime. Right. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. Creating access is about finding the courage to pry open doors that have been bolted shut for far too long and using your look-in moments to bring other people through the door with you. Before you can break down that door, you have to know that you can. People have been knocking those hinges loose for decades and now is our time to finish the job. Therefore, we urge you to know because you can. Thank you so much for listening and... Please drink responsibly. This podcast is produced by the Lager Lane Group. We would like to thank Lager Lane Spirits co-producers and writers, Courtney Oliphant and Pepper Chambers Sirachi, co-producer Matthew Sirachi, podcast coordinator AJ Dinsmore, and Liam Allen for their original composition and vocals. We'd also like to thank Podcast Haven and our guest, Angela Lee. Remember to grab the smoke and mirrors recipe and show notes by going to lagrolanespirits.com. We'll see you next time. And if you love the cocktail or the episode, make sure you rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. 